All right, we're going to read from God's Word in just a moment. And as God's Word is read faithfully and taught accurately, it's God speaking to us. Uh, But before we get there, a couple of other announcements for this week, just to break them up. It is, if you remember here, our general meeting on Tuesday night at 6.30, where we're voting on the next nominations for our committee. It'd be great to have everyone there. If you have not signed up to be a member or you don't know if you have, please speak to me today is the day to do that. It's an important part of our church life together. But also right after that, David Bennett, who is the author of A War of Loves, will be speaking about his experience of following Jesus and radical discipleship to Jesus while experiencing same-sex attraction. So that should be a great perspective to hear on that night in the lead-up to Christmas. And that's everything. We're going to open up the scriptures now from Deuteronomy 30. And the Bible reading will come up on the screen if you wanted to follow along there or if you have a Bible with you. We're going to be reading from Deuteronomy 30, sentences 15 to 19. Deuteronomy 30. See, I have set before you today life and good and death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going to to enter in the Jordan and possess. I call heaven and earth as witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. This is the word of God. Hey guys, my name's Jacob, if I haven't met you guys before. Um, and it's great to be with you on our last normal week of church for the year. And I'm really looking forward to the next couple of weeks as well. It's going to be great celebrating Christmas together. Next Sunday's going to be awesome. Hopefully the weather's going to be like it is today. And um, yeah, just having a few hours just to hang out uh, as a church. There'll be food up on the top oval. Bring a picnic blanket, come and, come and chill out for a couple of hours. And then a great time in here celebrating. But um, as I was just, yeah, I was reflecting this morning that this is our, our last kind of normal week of the year and this is my last time up on this stage for you. So I just wanted just to share how thankful I am for you guys and for the year that we've had as a church. Um, I just feel really, really grateful to be a part of City Light this year um, and I just want to thank you guys for how amazing you make church each and every week. For the people who come up on the Sunday morning in particular, um, from 8 o'clock onwards and are setting things up and practicing and getting things ready, as well as everyone who just, um, just makes the church great through the week as well. And in particular, I just want to say just how encouraged I've been by all the City Light community leaders over this year. Um, this group of men and women just do such an amazing job week in, week out, opening up their homes, um, thinking about how to, how to love uh, this church and to grow it. So I just want to start with that to say I'm really thankful as we, as we round off our 10th year and get ready to celebrate that together coming into next year. But how about we pray and then we're going to jump into Deuteronomy 30 and 31 together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to ask as we open your word now and as we reflect on a very particular call to the people of Israel 3,000 years ago, that we would just be... Uh, we would be spoken to and that you would be addressing us where we are as we need to understand how it is that you are calling us towards life, how it is that you are wanting to work in us today to change us so that we can experience more of you 
and more of this life as it is meant to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do we not do what we know is good? Why do we do what we hate? It is the question we never really ask, and it is the only one that can make a difference. For all the vast religious and ethical literature available to us today, for all the evidence of the futility of violence and hatred in our lives and in the world, for all our efforts to find the help we need, for all our yearning to be men and women capable of love, the question remains, why can't we be good? That's the introduction from Jacob Needleman's book, Why Can't We Be Good? He's a philosopher and he, and he writes this book in response to the reality that we live in a world that is saturated with self-help. Help to be certain kinds of people and then in doing so and in being certain kinds of people to receive the benefits of a good life. Thousands, if not tens of thousands of books, podcasts and classes on how to be a good spouse and in doing so have a good marriage, on how to be a good parent and in doing so raise happy children, on how to eat right and live a life of health, in how to keep a healthy mind and experience good thoughts, how to keep our temptations in check. And Needleman in his book argues that the sheer volume of, of literature and the abundance of resources that we have in our disposal in this 21st century to help us know what we ought to do only shows us one thing. And that is that there is something about us that fundamentally stops us from being the kind of people we want to be, from doing what we know we should do. That in our pursuit of the good life, whatever that good life might mean to each and every one of us, the main barrier that we find ourselves coming up against time and time again is not something external, but it's ourselves. And this is the question that we're wrestling with today. How can we be good? In particular, how can we be good in such a way that leads to us obtaining life and life to the full? As just mentioned, we've finally come to the end of our time in the book of Deuteronomy which has been a series of speeches given to the people of Israel as they prepare to enter into the promised land. It's been the laying out of a law, a set of um, instructions as to how they are to live and to flourish. And today we're looking at really the, the final speech that Moses gives his people before his death. Deuteronomy ends with Moses dying and the people getting ready to go in without him into this promised land that they've been waiting for. And in his, and in his final words, we see from Moses... Uh, really, I guess, a recap of the book that we've been looking at for these last 10 weeks here at City Light, as well as pointing us towards hope going forward. So what we're going to look at today as we, as we go through this is just three points, how to get the good life, point two, the reality of failure, and point three, new hearts. And so firstly, how to get the good life. Moses paints for the Israelites in that reading that Jez just read for us, a picture of two ways that they can move forward based on everything that they've heard up until that point. There's the road to goodness and life, and there's a road to evil and death. And if you've been joining us over these past weeks, we've just seen time and time again, over 30 chapters of Deuteronomy, the people of Israel have heard warning after warning to not fall away, to not worship other gods, to not make the same mistakes as their ancestors. And they've heard these laws that we've been digging into that lay out a, a really a, a framework for life of how to build a community that lives out 
generosity, a harmony, um, who experiences prosperity and who is centered around a love for God, a love for one another, and even a love for those on the, on the fringes, of the, for the foreigners around them. And Moses is saying in this chapter, okay, that speech is done, you've heard everything there is to hear, now it's action time. And there are two options as to how you might choose to respond to this. Look at me from verse 15 again. He says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Here Moses lays out for them, here's what the prerequisite for the good life is. And it's tied up in what kind of people the Israelites are going to choose to be. Will they be the kind of people who decide to love God and bring their life into his ways? Or won't they? And so what Moses is saying is that the secret to the good life to receiving this blessing isn't going to be found in how hard they work. It's not going to be found in how much wealth they can amass for themselves. It's not going to be found in the quality of their security or their armies or their conquest. It's going to be found in who they are. What type of people they are? Are they going to be people who love God? There's a flip side to that as well if you read on in verse 17. Moses says, If your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. This good life that is in offer, it can be lost as well. And it comes down to a choice. What's it going to be, life or death? And so Moses appeals in verse 19 with this, with this urgency. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Everything that they've heard comes down to a choice. One of two ways. And he appeals to them, make the right choice. Choose life. This choice between life and death, between light and darkness, between good and evil, is the most significant choice before the Israelites. But really, it's more than that. What Moses is capturing here is the divergent path that every single person has to face. The path between life and death, good and evil. Which of these two roads we are on is the most significantly important thing about each and every one of us. Are we walking towards the good life? Are we walking down a path that is eroding that life? Are we walking in sync with ultimate goodness? Or are we giving in to the evil within and contributing to the evil without? I think most of us, when we have these moments of pause and reflection and quietness, come pretty quickly to the reality that we we find in ourselves an internal battle, a struggle tugging in each of these two ways. We're conflicted by the reality that we have the potential to make choices that make our lives better and fuller, gooder, but also the potential to make choices that cause destruction and harm and sadness. And navigating this moral landscape is the most, I guess, highest stake part of our lives. That's why these, these are the themes of every great story of all great literature. The battle between these two ends. 
It's why in Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, it's, it's, it's the pleading of Obi-Wan to Anakin not to turn to the dark side. It's Sam pleading with Frodo to, to cast the ring into Mordor and not be overcome by its power. It's Moses, as he does here, pleading with Israel, don't go down the road to death. And this struggle that we find ourselves in, this moral struggle, is what religions, really all religions, try to address. How do we get ourselves on the path to the good life? How do we foster some sense of inner goodness or, and how do we prosper and receive blessing? How do we beat our inclination towards evil? And if it's possible, how do we break through the barrier of death? And different religions tackle this question differently, but the, but the aim is the same. It's, it's, we want to find the right way. We want to find the good life. We want to gain the blessing and avoid the curse. And really, that's what the, the Jewish law is. It's this prescription to, to gain this blessing. It's a prescription to life. But the problem with this, and the problem with this appeal that Moses gives his people, and the, the problem with the choice that we find in ourselves, is the reality of failure. The reality of failure. We see this in the very next chapter. Like I said before, Deuteronomy ends with Moses stepping down off his podium or his rock or whatever he was standing on to give his speech, going up to a mountain where he dies, not yet entering into the promised land. But before his death, he has one final encounter with God where God speaks to him. I want to read you what God says to him in this encounter. It's from the next chapter, chapter 31, from verse 16. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil they have done, because they have turned to other gods." This isn't a particularly moving way to finish the book. It's not an encouraging few verses to end on. It's not, it's not really in the line of kind of what the rest of the book's been, which is encouraging the people to go out and, and do well. Back when I was in high school, once a year, we would have this kind of event on where they would get motivational speakers to come and speak to us. Because I, I went to a private school, and the one thing that private school kids need more of is people telling them that they're special and they can do anything. And so they'd book that in just to, just to make us feel good. And they get people to come in and talk about their lives and, and, and inspire. And there's only one year I can really remember, and it, it's because they'd, they'd booked in to have Merrick and Rosso come and speak. Now, I don't know if people remember Merrick and Rosso. They were like Nova 969 in 2004. They were a big deal at the time. Um, and so we were looking forward to that. They were these comedians. But on the morning of this motivational talk, uh, we got news that they weren't going to make it. They double-booked or something, so we were really disappointed. And so the, they were sending out these kind of new guys from the radio station We'd never heard of them. The names were Hamish and Andy. But they hadn't really achieved anything themselves, and, and they were caught up last minute. And so it was pretty clear when they got there that they'd only been told a couple of hours before that they had to speak to this group of Year 9 students. And they didn't have anything up motivating to say because they hadn't achieved anything yet. It'd be a different story now. 
So what they just did was they told some jokes and then they did a Q&A session in which they proceeded to mock every single kid that asked a question. <laughs> now, they didn't really nail the brief. It was meant to be motivating. They, I think one kid actually cried when they made fun of him. Great memories. But they didn't nail the brief. And it almost feels like at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses has been making these great efforts to get up in front of the people and just tell them, you guys can do this. You're going to make the right choice. You can do it. And then God himself doesn't nail the brief. He comes in at the end and says, they're going to fail. It's a given. They're not going to be able to do it. And like, that's, that's, if you've ever been to hear a motivational speaker, they don't end with, you are going to fail. It's one of the least motivating things you can hear. It feels like a real downer to end on. So what's going on here? What God says in these verses is of a similar vein to things we read throughout the Bible, which is this realism about what we are like. That we've got a problem when it comes to obedience. We've got a problem when it comes to making the decisions that lead to life. And the problem is the problem with the heart. If our biggest problem was an intellectual one, that we just didn't know what to do in order to have a good life, then the solution would just be well, more instruction. More books, more classes, more courses on how to live the good life. A law like the one that the Israelites had been given would work because it's pretty clear, it lays it out pretty simply, here's how to have the good life, here's how to be blessed. But their biggest problem isn't knowing what to do. Their biggest problem is in their ability to do it. And I think that's our reality too. We don't seem to be able to be the people who do even the things that we know to be good, even the things that we want to do. Sometimes when people talk about, I guess, God holding people to account and, and judging us based on our lives, we can kind of feel, well, that's kind of a pretty unfair concept. Like, who, is, who is God to say that I've had to live up to his standard? I haven't signed on to that. I haven't agreed to that. In response to that question, Francis Schaeffer, who was an author in the 70s, imagined a scenario in which every single person at birth had an invisible tape recorder placed around their neck. And it was the 70s, that's why it's a tape recorder, not some AI implant thing. But he says, just imagine if that tape recorder would just activate every time you said you should, or they should, or they should have. Every time that we've really made a moral judgment based on someone else around us, saying that this is how someone else should live. And Francis Schaeffer imagined if at that point, when, when we stand before God, all he said was, look, I'm going to be fair. I'm just going to judge you according to your own standard over the things that you said should be the standard that people should live. And his conclusion is that no one would be able to say they haven't failed. Not simply to live up to God's standard, but to even live up to the things that we've decided for ourselves. Our issue isn't a matter of knowing what is right. It's a matter of not being able to do it. We constantly fail to do the things that we set for others. If we find out someone's been speaking behind our back, we, we get angry to the core, and yet we speak about other people behind their back all the time. Even the things that we kind of set aside for ourselves as our own like ambitions, we, we find unable to do. No one stops and takes note of their life and says, look, this is the kind of life I want to live. I want to watch 12 hours of TV a week. I want to look at stuff on my phone when I'm meant to be hanging out with my kids and being present with them. I want to be a gossip and talk about people behind their back. I want to look at porn. I want to spend money on cheap clothes that are made by exploiting people in other countries. We, we, no one wants that kind of life. In fact, we often resolve for ourselves in these different areas and many more to do the opposite. 
But again and again and again, we come up with a reality that we fail. We fail to do the things that we want. And what's the nature of this inability to do right? It's not that doing the right thing is necessarily intrinsically that difficult. It's not hard, for example, to tell the truth in a physical sense. Telling the truth is just kind of making some words come out of your mouth that align with reality. But why telling the truth is hard is simply because often we don't want to. It's not hard to give to the poor. You've all got a device in your pocket right now that probably within two minutes, you could give away every bit of money you have to the poor right now. It's not hard, but it's our heart, isn't it? We don't want to do it. It's a desire problem. And this is why Israel fails to obey the law, because not that the law is necessarily too hard for them, but because they don't want to. It's their heart. They don't want to love God. They don't want to walk in his ways. And this is where religion fails. It's all well and good to say, look, here's what is right. This is what we should do. This is how we should live. And if you do that, you'll be blessed. But travel anywhere in the world, in any culture, in any religion, and you'll find the same thing. People choosing to do what they know is wrong. Spreading pain, suffering, death as they follow their hearts down a road into darkness. The choice is to choose life or to choose death, but invariably, because of the state of our hearts and our deepest desires, we choose evil, we choose death. Now we're getting close to the the end of the last talk of the year in the book of Deuteronomy. It's our last week of church before Christmas, and we're on the verge of ending in a very dire place, aren't we? Um, It's so far a pretty hopeless presentation. But the book of Deuteronomy doesn't end without hope. It is, to be fair, I think only a glimmer of hope. But in Deuteronomy, there is a promise that God will provide a way that we might have life despite our inclination towards failure, despite our inclination towards evil. And it's in the promise of being given a new heart So we're going to read just another few verses now. This is the last passage. I'm aware that in this series we've covered a lot of text over a lot of weeks. This is the last six verses. Stick with me for six more verses of Deuteronomy. Because in these verses we see the hope. From Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, From there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Deuteronomy points to a hope that is outside of the law. And here's what he says. Yes, you will fail. You're going to have some blessings and you're going to have some curses because you are not able to live this perfect life. 
And one day, as a result of that, for the people of Israel, they will be outside of the promised land and things will not be going well for them. But he says a time is coming in which something will change. And in particular, it's what he says in verse 6. I'll read it again. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. That's a pretty graphic metaphor, circumcising the heart. I don't know how much you meant to try to visualize it. Maybe don't. Um, and so if you're new here, or even if you're not new, to be honest, you're like, that's a very odd metaphor. Like, that's a, that's a kind of a weird thing to say. Um, but there's no two ways around it, because it's getting to the heart of, of the Jewish identity and how they perceived themselves and how they perceived what made them holy and God's people and set apart and obedient, which was this tradition of circumcision. It was to be an external defining marker on all of the Israelite men to show their obedience to God. It was a ritual of, of cutting away a small piece of flesh to show that what remains has been chosen and set apart and made holy. It was an external way of showing that they were for God. But at the end of the day, that's, that's all it really is. It's an external marker. It's a sign. And much of the laws that they are given and that we've looked at over these weeks are, are, are external things about what you do and don't do. But the laws don't change the heart. But the promise that's being laid out here is that one day God is going to do something far, far deeper. Not just cutting off a part of the external flesh, but cutting away something in the very core of what it is to be a human. Cutting away some part of our heart. In the ancient world, the heart wasn't just the center of like emotion or something like that. It was the center of the person. It was the very core of your being. And he's saying God is going to do something on that level. Something within you. Something that's, that sits beneath all of your deepest desires and motivations. Something that affects your loves and your priorities. And he's going to change you. And so no more will it be a matter of just having to obey God externally, but you'll be changed from the inside out so that what you desire and what you should do become the same thing. That God will enable them to desire God, to love God and to live. Because this is what's needed. This is the only solution that will suffice. Not just tidying up the outside, not just tidying up what our lives look like, but, but radical, deep heart surgery. If the biggest barrier that we face in obtaining the good life and the life of blessing and a life with God is ourselves and it is our very selves that need to be changed. The book of Deuteronomy ends by pointing the Israelites, pointing the readers, pointing us outside of it to something that's yet to come. By saying, look, the answer isn't to be found here, but one day God will do what is needed. One day God will circumcise your heart so that you can love him and so that you may live. And the people of Israel wouldn't have known this, but it's pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the one who is pointed to here, the one who, who came into this world to do this thing that we needed done, to have our hearts changed, to transform us from the inside out. And the, and the writers of the Bible are aware of this. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11, in where, which it's talking about Jesus, um, the author Paul points to him as the answer to this promise. It says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in verse 11 it says, In him 
you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Here Paul says Jesus is the one who fulfills this promise, that he is the one who changes hearts and changes lives. That when Jesus came into our world, lived his life and then died on a cross, what he was doing in that death was not just some man dying for a cause, it was not just an example. It was taking a part of us with him, namely the part of us that is prone towards sin and death and destruction and having that put to death in his body so that what remains, what is left, what we are given is a life that can be pleasing to him, that can love him, that can be changed by him. That is what Jesus offers. He offers the opportunity to be made new, to finally have that niggling, broken part of the inside of us that makes our lives horrible, that makes us make decisions that, that hurt us, hurt others, hurt God, to have that put to death and over time be made more and more into his likeness. So as we come into this, into Christmas and as we think about that and you hear Christmas carols over the next few weeks and as you celebrate here and spend time with your families and friends, this isn't just some random cultural remembering or going through the motions. The reason this is the center of the Christian calendar, I guess, alongside Easter, is that we are recalling the good news of great joy, that the Savior has come, that he has come, and it is our, he is a Savior because without him we cannot live, that Jesus brought into our world what no other religion before, then, or since has offered, which is a way to change the human heart. So as we conclude our time in Deuteronomy, I just want to encourage you with this reality. To say it whether you've heard it a thousand times before, or whether you're hearing it for the first time today, or whether you heard it some time ago and have, have since forgotten it, but to say this, that Jesus is the path to life. Jesus is the path to life. The good life, the real life, eternal life. And so if you're feeling that frustrating feeling of the inability to live up, not even to someone else's standards, but to live up to your own standards, that becoming that person you want to be is elusively out of reach, or if it's not clear to you what even a good life even looks like and you're just searching for something that's going to satisfy, or if you're weighed down with your own failure and the sense that you are not good enough, or if you are hopeless that you're feeling on some deep level that there is no good yet before you, nothing to look forward to, nothing, nothing installed that is going to make you rejoice, then if that is you, if any of that is you, Jesus offers an answer. He offers a, a solution to guilt, to the weariness of striving impossibly to attain perfection by the things that we can do. He says it's done. When he dies, it is finished. There's nothing more that we need to do because he has done it for us that sin is forgiven and that we are made clean. And the invitation of Jesus is to come into his fold to receive what he has done for you and to follow him. To humbly follow him as your leader, to disciple under him and be transformed into the kind of person that we were made to be. People living out what it is to be made in the image of God. He offers a path to life. He offers real change. And it is good news of great joy. That's why we're doing 
pulling out all the stops for carols next week. It's not just because we want to have a jumping castle. It's because we've got some good news worth celebrating. It's really worth celebrating. We should feel alive and feel joyful as we come and sing these, these carols, which have actually got amazing lyrics written over the last few hundred years, capturing the reality of this good news of great joy. So I want to encourage you this Christmas, invite people into that as well. What better thing could there be for someone to experience this Christmas than, than an awareness of this good news? That there is life to be found, that there is change to be had. It's amazing news. We've got an opportunity now to sing about it. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing in just a moment. I'm just going to pray and thank God for this reality, the reality that we've got before us and for the way he's been at work in our church and that he will continue to do that. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word and for Deuteronomy and the just amazing pointing towards Jesus that we experience at the end of it. As we, as we come up against just what we've seen over these last 10 weeks of you being a good God who, who, who cares about us and has put forward just this, this law and this, this concept for the people of Israel to live. But Lord, we just want to thank you that you've opened the door to us, that you have made the way for us to be changed, that, that life is not out of reach anymore. It's not impossible to get because you have done what it takes. And so, Lord, just for anyone who is here, for myself and any others who maybe even like me, um, struggle and have struggled even maybe this week to really feel the weight of that or to believe that on, on the deepest possible level, um, just that you would help us. You have said that you are the one who can change hearts. So if anyone here is feeling that there is something wrong with their heart, there is something off, there is something broken, we ask that you would be healing and that you would be changing, that you would be transforming us, we might love you and love others as you have called us to do. We pray this all in Jesus' name.